If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Time is bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. My name is Darcy and I work here at the IAI. And my name is Margarita and I also work here at the IAI. And today we have Rhetoric and Reality featuring Assistant Professor of Applied Philosophy at the University of Twente, Nolan Gertz, Emeritus Professor of English at the University of Texas in Austin, Betty Sue Flowers, and AI Researcher for MIT Media Lab, Yosha Bag. So this took place in 2023 at How the Light Gets Festival in Hay, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the II. So, Margarita, tell us a bit more about the discussion. So, this debate explores if language can accurately explain reality, and they kind of go into how, despite the fact that we use language all the time, obviously we talk, we communicate, we write, sometimes narratives can either obfuscate or even manipulate reality and how we see it. Yeah, I guess it's also working on the basis that there is some sort of objective reality that you are accurately communicating. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. I think at the end, that's kind of what they end up asking. Mm. Important questions. And I think it's also a really nice mix of different, uh, different, I guess, disciplines coming yeah. together. To I think Yoshi's a really interesting researcher, so I would be interested to see what his take is. And remember, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for the debate, Katie Robertson. Hugely powerful. We assume language enables us to represent reality. But some argue language, from the greatest narratives to the finest theories, not only fails to describe reality, it actually distorts and misleads us. Language, the critics argue, formulates a world in its own image. The structure of language, nouns, adjectives, verbs, encourages us to imagine reality consists of their equivalent, things, qualities, and actions. But there is no reason to suppose this is the case, and reason instead to conclude that reality is entirely different from the way that it is represented in language. Should we cease to see language as a means of representing the world, and instead see it as a means to affect change? Have we mistaken rhetoric for reality? Or is the remarkable effectiveness of language evidence that language succeeds in describing reality, even if we don't fully understand how this is achieved? So on to our speakers. Nolan Gertz is an assistant professor of applied philosophy at the University of Twente. He is an author of a number of books, including The Philosophy of War and Exile and Nihilism and Technology. Betty Sue Flowers is the former director of the Lyndon Baines Johnson Library and Museum and an emerita professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin. She pioneered the modern psychological appreciation of ancient myths alongside the esteemed Joseph Campbell. Yosha Bach was an AI researcher for the MIT Media Lab and the Harvard Program for Evolutionary Dynamics, where he explored new frontiers in cognitive architecture and mental representation. He now works for the Thistledown Foundation. So first off, we're going to start with a pitch. And our first pitch is going to be from Nolan. Uh, the pitch is going to answer the question, should we cease to see language as a means of describing the world and instead see it as a means to affect change? Well, thank you. Uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. Um, I'm, 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 of course, forced to first ask, what, what do we mean by any of the words you just said in that question? <laughs> um, but it is, it is an interesting uh, dichotomy, right? So on the one hand, um, we represent reality in order to affect change. So it seems like a, a false dichotomy. 
but it's important to think about, and I'm, I'm sure you've all experienced this yourself, once you, you know, start thinking about the problem of does uh, my experience actually reflect reality? And then you say, you know, you ask a friend, well, this is what I see, is that what you see? Um, and then you realize, well, whatever your friend tells you is also a sensory experience. Um, so then you have to wonder, well, is my friend even really there? And is, am I able to interpret what anyone tells me outside of my own interpretation? Um, and then you either you know, go completely insane or become a philosophy professor, which is, which is kind of getting paid to be insane. Um, so that's, that's how I ended up here. But it is important, I think, to try to figure out how could we even approach an answer to the question um, and how could we do it outside of language? So it seems that we, we are stuck in uh, what some philosophers have called the hermeneutic circle, uh, that you can't provide any interpretation without itself being requiring interpretation. So it's just going to be an infinite regress problem. And I think, um, you know, at some point we become pragmatists, at least in the United States, and we just say, well, whatever works, works, and who really cares if, if this is reality or not. So I, I'm not going to be so bold as to say I know the answer, but instead get more postmodern and just say there is no answer. Thank you. Joshua. If we ask ourselves what language is, I, there are, of course, the natural languages and so on, but I think there is a wider notion of language. Everything that is systematic and compositional and can be used for representation is a language. And our thinking before we learn a language, a natural language, is also taking place in a language. If you're a computer scientist, you use a lot of languages for programming. What's interesting with these languages is that they're all designed to change reality and to describe a particular part of it. And it's very easy to make a language that lets the computer everything a computer can do. All the computer languages have the same power. They all let the computer do the same thing. And the way in which they differ is what they allow you to think about what the computer should be doing. Because they're designed in such a way that they make some thoughts fit easier in our minds than other thoughts. And this sounds like the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, this idea that language that we teach people affects what people are able to think, which thoughts are thinkable. I personally don't like this idea very much because it takes agency away from people. This idea that I can change what you believe by changing the words you are allowed to use. If you're thinking bad thoughts, maybe I can give you different words and you're no longer able to think bad thoughts. And I don't think this is how it works because the computer scientist is not constrained by their language. The uh, computer scientists just invent whatever language they need in the same way as when I think about a certain thing and I miss a concept or a word, I just make them up and go along, right? We always extend language. Language is mutable. It's a tool. We don't have another tool to represent reality. We are, we are forced to deal with languages that we create in our mind and our interaction with reality and meta-languages that allow us to reason about these languages and construct them and manipulate them. So fascinating when you see a child growing up learning natural language and you see this child constructing a sentence in their head, right? You see this construction takes place in some more basic language where this child arranges pointers and builds structures in their mind over their mental representations, over their percepts, over the uh, relationships that they discover about the world. And to me, it's very important to understand these deeper structures of these languages so we understand the gaps in our own language and our own abilities to represent the world. And I think that also many issues that we have in our own culture, when we talk about the topics that are relevant to this festival, topics like consciousness, mind, meaning, reality, we have gaps there in our language. We have problems to make our words mean things. We have gaps in our conceptual structures. Sometimes the relationships are not arranged in the right way. And then it's very important to think about the language that we are using. Thank you. Betty Sue? Well, you have two philosophers and a poet here. so. Uh, you're going to get an entirely different... I agree with everything you said till you said, is my friend real? No, I, I didn't follow you there. I mean, I did follow you, but because you're very clear. If, if I'm really here. I thought... <laughs> I would say you are. That's the difference. Right. But you would question that. Is that the line over which you... Well, that, that's the history of philosophy from Descartes, at least. There you have it. <laughs> the history of philosophy. I think understanding the brain is going to be much harder 
I mean, understanding language in relation than we ever imagined. Do you do you agree with that? Because then I'm gonna riff off that from there. I've just I don't need to agree with you. Be controversial. I know. <laughs> no, no, sparks. no. It's not an. Provoke it's me. a debate, but Make it's not either or. No, I just I want to know if you think it's hard to understand the brain or. If you think it's just a matter of mapping it out further or, I mean, is there some kind of roadblock like there is with string theory or something? Is there a roadblock? There is an enormous roadblock, and I suspect that roadblock is neuroscience. Basically, neuroscientists are squatting where we should be understanding uh, mental structure. They're looking at neurons, and the way in which they're looking at neurons does not scale up so far into an understanding of, the, of what the mind does and how it relates to the brain. It doesn't mean that neuroscience is a failed science, of course, it's in its beginning still. But for a long time, a large part of neuroscience was the art of putting people into a brain scanner and eliciting yes. beautiful patterns. And uh, meanwhile, AI researchers have built systems from the ground up com completely uh, orthogonal to what neuroscientists were doing based on the question, how would need something to work to produce a certain behavior? And this functionalist perspective that we think about the brain is an organ that produces a certain behavior. What does it need to do to produce that behavior? It's a perspective that I think is not being pursued enough. So I think this is the roadblock. And another roadblock is basically you zoom in, you see lots of trees, but you don't zoom out and see the forest. And so when we look at all these connections between neurons, we see enormous complexity. But this complexity is not the same as the recipe that goes into building the brain, right? Our uh, genome fits on a CD-ROM. It's about 750 um, megabytes, right? And a only tiny fraction of this codes for the brain. So the recipe for making a brain out of cells is relatively simple. We haven't discovered it yet, but it requires a very different thinking than looking at adult brains. It's more about a developmental perspective. What would it take to make something grow into a brain? And also, where does the brain stop? Does it really stop at neurons? Or are the cells around the, uh, the neurons also very important, right? In some sense, every cell can do the stuff that neurons are doing, which means sending messages to other cells, responding to them. The only thing that neurons can do in addition, as far as I can see, is that they can telegraph information very quickly over long distances. So in some sense, neurons are telegraph cells that talk about stuff that is happening in the organism, move muscles very fast, build perceptions very fast so they can articulate the muscles quickly enough, uh, address memories and so on. But uh, there is maybe more than brains are doing that uh, we, if we look at the information processing in organisms that uh, we are not looking at when we only look at neurons. See, this illustrates my first point. Reality doesn't reflect reality. Reality is really complicated. And I think that language doesn't just reflect reality because the older I get, the more mysterious reality is. And when you watch children learning language, they start with poetry. They start with repeating sounds that please them, that make them ba 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 ba, that make them feel something. So. I think the dichotomy between reflecting or creating is not is a is a is a false dichotomy because it creates, it reflects. Language coordinates. Language rouses emotion because of our associations with it. Can you even think some thoughts if you don't know some German words for concepts and emotions like Schadenfreude? Did I even feel schadenfreude before I knew that German word, the joy of someone else's sorrow? <laughs> I think that language is much more mysterious because it coordinates all these things. So I'm not, I'm not a nihilist. You Good. really are there. No, I'm, I'm, I'm criticizing nihilism, not, not supporting it. I figured you would because yeah, you're yeah. a nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to say something about language in relation to um, coordination because I think one reason we've succeeded in the world is because we use language to create a future together. And so I can say, meet me at such and such to do such and such. And there's this coordination function of language that also goes back to ourselves as feeling, emotion, connection, creativity. So for me, language has a it has a connective element that is neither reflective or creative, but also connective. 
it's beautiful and I love it. Thank you very much. So we've heard the pictures, now we're going to move on to the debate. Um, so let's start with the question, in, in what in broad terms is the relationship between language and reality? Nolan, I'll start with you. Yeah, um, this is something a lot of philosophers have tried to figure out. I was just teaching last week uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's uh, on truth and lies in an extra moral sense, and this is basically what his essay is about. And he says that, you know, there's something uh, where we are, we are transposing uh, sound to meaning and then uh, meaning to reality, and then we just forget all the transpositions and we just think it's a one-for-one -one relation. Uh, but he says that, you know, language is just a, a moving army of uh, metaphors and metonymies. And this idea that we, we basically um, try to figure out, you know, why did language even come about? And as uh, Rousseau argued, for example, you, you're going to end up probably in some kind of paradox where it seems like you needed language to create language. So how could we ever communicate to create communication without already having a basis for communication? Then you have someone like Michel de Montaigne, uh, who described uh, basically the world as God giving us two books. Uh, so there's the book of the Bible and then the book of nature. And the idea that if you are able to read nature in the same way we can read the Bible, then you would actually know God's plan. Um, and so this became very important in the modern era and this idea that, again, scientists are not the enemy of religion, they're just the latest form of it um, and still trying to understand the, the building blocks of reality. And this idea that um, language could also be seen as itself shaping reality, right? So this idea that we make an agreement uh, that a sound represents a certain experience. And then, as, as Betty just said, with schadenfreude, there's this idea, my undergraduate thesis, for example, was on the history of boredom. And what's interesting is the word boredom didn't appear uh, until 17, 18th century. Does that mean that boredom itself did not exist before that? No, of course not. There was uh, ennui, there was uh, the French called it the English malady, the English called it the French malady. Uh, you could trace it back to annoy, you could trace it back to ascetia, you could trace it back to sloth. But again, this idea of the actual word, its first written down word in English was actually boreism. So we came very close to being borist, which would have a different meaning here in England. But again, this idea, yeah, trying to pinpoint um, the relationship between language and reality and this idea that if I cannot give my, my experience words, then I cannot get it outside of myself. And yet, if you look at someone like Plato, you get this very important idea about what is analogy doing, and it's basically this idea that I'm trying to say the unsayable. So if, uh, you know, reading Shakespeare and this idea, you know, Juliet is the sun, I am the moon, you know, you're not saying she's a giant fiery orb that if I get too close will murder me, right? Um, but at the same time, if I say, Juliet, you're really hot, uh, that, that doesn't sound very Shakespearean. Um, and then you realize, well, that also is a metaphor. Um, and then you say, you're very attractive. And then you're like, wait, that's a metaphor. Uh, so how do you get outside of the metaphor? And the idea is that, no, 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 I'm, I'm actually bearing the truth of my experience in the metaphor. So it, it's not a, a distinction necessarily. It, it is the experience. It's metaphors all the way down. No, I, I think, do you know Wallace Stevens' uh, mm. soliloquy of the interior paramour? Yeah, you know that even our love affair with ourself is conducted in language. I knew a corporate uh, president of a corporation who said he changed the culture of the corporation by changing the metaphor. His predecessor had done it like a foot American football team. You know, go out there, fight them. We're going to be on the 50-yard line tomorrow. And he changed it to a band. He said, we're the marching band. We've got to play together. We've got to, by changing the metaphor, he, it moved the culture in a different direction. So I think uh, analogy and metaphor, extremely important in language. I, I don't even know if we can learn new things without analogy. What, what, what would we have to stand on? Um, unless you're a mathematician and it's doing numbers, but. I think when you uh, look at Nietzsche, it's quite typical that he would say that language is an army of metaphors. Nietzsche was quite special. If Nietzsche was alive today, he'd probably be on Twitter and super popular and very, very controversial. 
I think he is the shit poster among the philosophers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kant probably would not write on Twitter. He would write in the Wolfram language. He would make very huh. intricate models uh, that would not be controversial and very few people would understand them. And uh, it, it, it would not be metaphorical. It would be computational stuff that he's doing. And if you read his books, they're quite computational, right? The enterprise of science, I don't think, is the continuation of religion. For some people, it is. If you have a lawn uh, sign that says, I believe in science, is the first tenet, you probably don't express, um, I believe in systematically criticizing and uh, doubting everything, right? What you say is, this first thing, the list of beliefs that make me a better person if I believe in them. But science itself is an enterprise that is built around the idea that some things are only true or false, not right or wrong. And we are exploring the domain of true and false, not the domain of right and wrong, which requires a very different methodology. Whereas religion is not built around this. Religion is not built around the question, is it true that Jesus is born by a virgin? It's built around the question, it's the right thing to believe for you. And uh, also I have enough of other beliefs for you that will lead to a good conduct of life. So religion ultimately is very much about right and wrong. In a sense, it's more related to an ideology than to a science. And of course, after you remove religion from people's life, they still will have a need for spiritual guidance. And some people believe that the spiritual guidance should come out of a different church, someone that is more truthful, more objective, more rational. Maybe it's Harvard, right? And so I think I believe in science is just the expression that Harvard is a new church of Protestantism for some people, right? And there's probably nothing wrong with it. It's maybe better than other churches, but it's a church. And uh, then there's also the question, should we continue to have a separation between church and state? And if Harvard becomes a church or part of it becomes a church, who uh, keeps doing the science for us? So I do see this postmodernist perspective, this every, anything goes and everything that makes you successful as an academic is permissible as long as your peers are doing this. I, I think that we run into trouble if we don't treat language also as a tool that describes the world of right and wrong and constructs a reality that is independent from changing reality, right? There are several intellectual traditions that exist. And I think that mathematics is the domain of all languages, technically speaking. It describes anything that can represent something, all the simple games. And mathematics is not about changing the world. If you make mathematics about changing the world, you lose its essence. The true science about changing the world, I think, is economy. Right, it's about changing bits in the universe and understanding how to get the energy for doing this and doing all the equations. And uh, economy needs a lot of mathematics and modeling. And there are other disciplines like philosophy that think about the possible. And some of philosophy might be about changing the world and some of it is about describing it or uh, describing the conditions under which we can change or understand something. But uh, it's not all the same. I think there are different domains that require different languages and different stances that we have to those languages. So Yossi, you've very uh, sharply distinguished between uh, the kind of uh, right and wrong versus true and false, which maybe comes up against a little bit the idea that what, we, what words we have affect what we can do. So is there any opposition to this sharp distinction? Yeah, well, it's, it's an interesting distinction within philosophy itself, right? So it's what's now known uh, as the, the analytic versus continental tradition. So if you, if you want a job in philosophy, you pursue analytic philosophy. Uh, but if you want to be interesting, you go to Continental. <laughs> um, and this idea that to, to do analytic philosophy is, is basically just a game uh, where you're trying to introduce as much nuance as possible into everything. So you're constantly looking for new distinctions. Um, and so as soon as you say, you know, for example, yesterday's panel, good and evil, you want to say, well, what do, you, what do you mean by good? What do you mean by evil? In which language? In which tradition? In which context? And it, at some point, you forget what the first question was, and you've already moved on uh, because you've published 20 articles in this time. Um, so I do think it's important. Um, again, this is something uh, you know, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau talked about, this idea that um, we use reason um, in order to avoid morality, not in order to describe reality. And so this idea that you have, uh, he gives this image of, of philosophers debating right and wrong uh, while there's uh, little old ladies who are, who are actually breaking up a fight below. And the idea that the philosophers are so busy debating each other that they didn't even notice that there actually is a fight breaking out. And the idea for Rousseau is that actually, no, 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 they, they know the fight's breaking out. That's, that's why they started the philosophy debate, so they didn't have to get involved. <laughs> um, and, and so I do think there's an interesting way 
um, that you could also use language to distance yourself from reality, right? And this is why, you know, I tell my students, if someone says to you, I love you, um, you know, you could just be dumb and say, I love you too. Or you could be a philosopher and say, well, what do you mean by love, right? And then you just, you know, which, which kind of love are we talking about, right? Are you saying that um, I want to see you naked or are you saying uh, I'll be with you even if you have cancer, right? Because you could go 40, 50 years before you find out which one of the two is operative and then someone gets cancer and you say, okay, see you later. Um, so again, you know, maybe you should have asked that before the wedding day. But the idea that, um, you know, we can, we can use... Uh, and this is something, again, social media is helping us to realize more and more, um, you know, this is what Harry Frankfurt called bullshitting, um, that we can use language to say one thing when we mean another. And then, you, again, you, you hide under the nuance and say, well, no, no, no I said that. Um, and I knew you wouldn't take me at my word so that I could play on that later to get what I want, right? Um, so I think it's important, uh, yeah, trying to figure out are we, are we seeking distinctions, nuances, dualisms in order to actually describe something to understand it um, or actually to, to gain some sort of competitive advantage? Again, the, the team metaphor you used earlier. Do you think that, that philosophy is beautiful? Um, I hope so, but it's usually very ugly. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is, again, the, the problem uh, sort of going back to Kant, uh, the idea that even, even Germans read Kant in English because the German is, is too ugly to look at. Um, but it is interesting, the idea that uh, this came up in the string theory debate as well, right? This idea of, of uh, the Gerdo Escherbach, you know, are we looking for beauty in math? Are we looking for beauty? So I do think it's, it's um, something that David Hume was worried about, right? Um, he says that at the end of the day, philosophy is basically poetry and that you win adherence by, by sounding good. Uh, so again, the rhetoric debate. The See, he's taking my, yeah. the words right out of my, he's making my argument here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm <laughs> the mathematician Misha Gromov once told me that he believes philosophy is long over and that Darwin was the last philosopher because Darwin really had to connect the dots. He had to understand something that was not apparent and would also not be introduced by an experiment. Whereas, for instance, Gregor Mendel, the famous geneticist, was not a philosopher. He was somebody who had to came up with something that was also not just apparent by thinking about it, but had to be experimentally tested and required some degree of formal thought. And uh, Misha Gromov believes, consequently, that everything that came after Darwin was no longer philosophy. So I asked him, what about Russell? And he said, well, Russell was an excellent writer and teacher and explainer, but he has not actually contributed any new thought, anything that nobody has ever thought before, for, before Russell. And um, also as philosophers sometimes, you know, what, was, uh, the, what were the most important contributions uh, since 2050? Did you have anything left? And I said, mm, yeah, um, Turing. Uh, no, Turing, uh, how, how do you count him to be a philosopher? Of course this was a breakthrough, but you guys don't understand what he says. You don't understand even Goethe. For you, Gödel is an artifact in the Museum of Mathematics that is very mysterious. And in your understanding, if you read Lukács, who is still somewhat canonical in, in the understanding of philosophy, Gödel has not uh, said something that changes uh, the way in which you think about reality as a philosopher, even though it's about the deepest notion of how we define truth, right? Instead, Gödel has somehow said that mathematicians cannot describe reality, which gives an advantage to people who don't understand mathematics, namely modern philosophers. And uh, there's a reason why there is no continental physics or no continental computer science, but continental philosophy, a part of philosophy that I think is, uh, is important, but it's a form of literature. It's a form of philosophy that can be produced by a language model without any discernible difference, right? I suspect that right now, if you were producing these uh, papers and you have a blind, uh, double blind review, it would be very difficult to get a signal out of the reviewers if you produce a continental philosophy paper, which to me is very problematic because it says something about our relationship of language and reality. Yeah, I guess for the something like AI, then there isn't this connection to the world that we've been focusing on. Does any do either of you want to uh, come back to this before I introduce the next? Do you, do you want to? Please, respond? I'm trying to provoke you here. Please yes, respond. No, <laughs> push back no, against no. me. You can't provoke <laughs> me with that, but yeah, yeah. you should be provoked. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 interesting because um, uh, Wittgenstein is someone claimed by by both sides. Yeah. 
Um, and what's interesting is, you know, Wittgenstein talks about um, to learn a language is to learn a world, um, and the importance between um, language and experience. So he tried to be an analytic philosopher in the Tractatus, um, and this, this birthed an entire movement of analytic philosophy, which he himself then rejects in the Philosophical Investigations, where he basically opens the book with a, with a brief little summary of the Tractatus and says, well, that was clearly false, let's move on. Um, and this is why uh, you know, he talks about this idea that um, if, if you've ever read it on a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, if a lion could speak, we would not understand it, right? And again, this idea that it's not about the language the lion is, is using in, in the literal word sense, but the idea that the form of experience that a lion has can't just be communicated in the words. So I moved to the Netherlands eight years ago, and I've been trying to learn Dutch, um, which is very frustrating because all Dutch people speak English better than I do. Um, so as soon as I try to speak Dutch, they just switch to English and, and laugh at you. Um, but again, this idea that you, you do not really understand Dutch experience outside the language. And actually, the very, the very grammar of Dutch reflects a different way of thinking about reality, right? And this is something that you see in French, German, but not in English, where, for example, you don't know till the end of the sentence if you're about to negate the sentence or not. So you actually have to pay attention. Whereas yeah. in English, I say not at the beginning of the sentence, and you don't care whatever happens after that. So you don't have to listen to me. Um, but again, it's, it's very important, I think, trying to understand if, if something like ChatGPT or generative AI is quote-unquote talking, um, is that a lion that we could not understand? Um, is this a language game from Wittgenstein representative of the fuzzy language argument? Or is it, in fact, as some people now say, it's, it's just hallucinating? Um, and the whole point is that it's, it's meaning that we're attributing to it. So then again, going back to the beginning about is it, um, you know, is it ba 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 ba? And then you say, oh, they're, they're trying to say bottle. But no, it's just ba 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 But you, yeah. you threw the bottle yes. in there. Do you think that's what's There's happening? There's something very important when we think about languages and dialects. They're not just uh, different ways to use words, but also to combine them with attitudes. Right? These words refer to also ways in which we relate to reality and to each other. So I find that the different dialects that exist in Germany are combined with attitudes. The uh, dialects of Berlin, for instance, are connected with something like a relatively gruff attitude compared to, say, a language of Cologne, which is much more trying to please, and uh, or the language of Hamburg, which is much more Scandinavian in a way and reserved and cool and matter-of-factly. And uh, so th these different aspects uh, do not just touch on the words, but also in the way in which we relate to the way in which we use the words in front of others. So when you talk about the Dutch experience, right, it's also about being able to emulate some of the attitude and the way in which you relate yourself to the world and to others and to, uh, to yourself when you use that kind of language. And it's part of the human language, of our human condition, to build this into the language. And it's often difficult to reflect it. Because, uh, for instance, our language of thought, the thing that underlies all our thinking, is something that we form before we form a self-model. Right? So we don't remember ever having built that because it was built because there before there was a person in our own mind. And so we do, uh, rarely notice that we have that thing. When you are a programmer, you notice how you're using it. You notice that you're not thinking in English while you program, and you're also not thinking in the programming language while you're programming. You see yourself shifting things throughout, and it doesn't really feel like anything because it underlies the feelings. And it, you only notice it when it breaks, when it's uh, falling apart, uh, when you have an accident maybe, or when you're s super drunk, or when you're super tired, and you notice it doesn't really work anymore. Then y you can have a glimpse at it. And uh, to me, this is really interesting to see how we are built, how our own mind builds itself through a language that is in some sense colonizing our brain and enables every part of our mind to talk to all the other parts. And what's really fascinating to me is the idea that we could build such a thing in a computer, that we take the embedding spaces of our language models and vision models and extract a language of thought from them. So the different components of these different computer models can talk to each other. And maybe they can also observe us so closely that they can deduce our own language of thought and go into resonance with it. You know, when you are resonating very much with another person, say a very close lover, that they've known for a very long time. You sit in front of them and you go deeply into resonance with them and you're able to experience their thoughts and feelings, right? There is some sharing 
of an inner language, of a synchronization of the language of thought. Imagine we could do this with a machine that is synchronizing yourself itself with you, and it's reading your thoughts, and you're sitting there, and on the screen, you see what you imagine, and you interact with it, and you basically extend yourself far beyond your current substrate. That, to me, is really, really fascinating, and I wonder if this is something that could be in our future. So it seems like the language of thought might be something slightly different from our spoken language. But earlier, Betty Sue, you discussed how coordination was a really important function of language. Uh, so I wondered uh, what you think explains the success of human language. Because humans were successful. I mean, it's the chicken egg thing. L we're successful because of language, because we could plan how to do a big hunt together and that kind of thing. But because we're successful, language is success. So I, I don't know where to start, chicken <laughs> egg. And then something happened with the brain that contributed to this. And then we started uh, taking care of children longer which allowed them to learn in a different way from other animals. So th it's th there's a multi-part thing to this about uh, why, why our language succeeded. But even in the same language, we have communities of connectedness that make the same words come to a different meaning. For example, in Texas, we'll, have a, we'll tell a story and we'll say, bless his heart. Now, that sounds like a nice thing, but it actually means this poor schmuck, he didn't know what he was doing. So we say, so-and-so, bless his heart, did something, something, something. So it's that little phrase that if you're in the community, you know you're about to hear something where someone just has no clue what he was doing. And so there, there's a way in which the, the language community creates the experience of the language. So you can speak Dutch, but you might might take another lifetime to be in that community that deeply. My question for you is with this, the language, at some point, if I understand com computers correctly, which I may not, this whole language thing with AI comes down to a binary of zeros and ones, or is that wrong? I know quantum computers are different, but, but are we saying that the whole experience that goes into the computer and comes out goes through this matrix of a very simple duality? No, it just yes and no just means that we can measure every degree of differences by many, many successive yes and no's. Right, so the bit is just the unit of difference. But uh, what this bit means depends entirely on the context. And if we arrange eight bits together, we can not just measure eight differences, but 256 uh, differences. Are, right? are you saying 256 is a, that is the number, or are you just no, using that? No, it's just for eight bits. But uh, if you have a computer, how many bits does it have? How many differences can it measure, right? There are many, many trillions of differences that the computer can express in its memory. And as a result, it can explain many, many shades. It's very similar to, say, a record on a CD-ROM, on a CD, you have digital information. It's only bits there, right? But by stacking enough bits, the resolution of the CD becomes larger than the physical resolution of the molecules that it can control on the surface of the vinyl record. So uh, as a result, by just using enough bits, you can get your resolution above any threshold that you want. And this is just a technical way of building these systems in a reproducible way. So we can use the same program on every computer of the same brand and build. Right? This is a, a convention to make this thing happening. In principle, we could also make analogous computer, which that instead of having finite digital resolution, would have a finite resolution due to the noise that at some point is overtaking its circuits. So I don't think that itself is a very big difference. Hmm. But there is another difference that is in the way in which we represent reality. When we see reality, when we perceive it, when we observe it, we do this on many, many layers, right, at depths. And we have to integrate deeply over those layers, not just to the next layer, but we also have to look to the grandparents and great-grandparents of some concepts to make sense of something. Right? S to see the significance of some features, we need to go very up, far up in the conceptual hierarchy. And if you are a nerd like me, um, you maybe have a tendency to go much more into the fine-grained details and have high resolution on the lowest layers. For nerds, the world of the computer is catnip because the world of the computer is made of flat scripts. 
where you need extremely high resolution on few layers when you write the programs and think about them. It's a very particular way of reasoning about the world that basically you resolve the entire world into decision trees and lots and lots of yes and no's. And you make extremely definite decisions about all those parts when you write a program. It's a very accurate but very, very specific way of thinking that is very unlike of what an artist does when they capture conscious states. And I often wish that we would become aware of this, because right now, the schools of the observers, of the people who do perception, the artists, and the schools of those who do the modeling, who describe our theories and so on, are too far apart. Right? And I read a psychology book about emotion. I cannot learn ab anything about it. It's not because I know so much about emotion, but it's because the people who are really, really good at recognizing emotion don't write many books in psychology. Right? And this discrepancy is something where there's basically a lot of potential that we could unearth if we create something where we complete each other much more across the different ways of using our inner and outer languages to relate to reality. Where does nihilism fit into this? <laughs> or anti-nihilism? Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the desire um, to reduce language to something that a computer could model um, and that consciousness could also be something a computer could model. You know, that there's, there's something interesting about wanting a, re a reductive answer, right? Um, which I think in some ways you can, you can sort of see going back to um, the concept of, of magic, right? And this idea that if you, if you say the right Latin phrase, that this will create, you know, it'll manifest something in the same way. Like in Judaism, um, if, you, if you know the name of God, that you cannot say it because saying it has a power, right? Um, so there's this interesting idea about, um, you know, why, why on earth do we want AI? This, this is something that I've been struggling with uh, recently in my own work because I think it's, it's, again, this sort of taken-for-granted assumption that it's, it's inevitable. We, we, we're going to have it. Um, and that because we've reduced intelligence to something a machine could do, then obviously you understand artificial intelligence as something not only possible, but likely. Um, and then of course, because we have this fantasy that machines will do things for us so that we can have our free time, then you want artificial intelligence. But then at the same time, you start to think, oh wait, it's probably gonna try to kill us all, so maybe we need an AI to fight the AI. And again, this but why do, we, why do we even want it? And again, why don't we all just stop and, and just not go down that road? So I, I am worried about this idea that, that we, we reduce experience, um, again, to something like zeros and ones, something that, that can be described in order to then be able to say a computer can describe reality. But if we talked about, you know, one thing that hasn't come up yet is something like body language, right? and the, the, how important it is in order to understand a speaker that you could actually see their body. And we discovered this, of course, during the pandemic when you, when you tried to have a Zoom conversation and realized how, how awful it was, right? I was teaching on Zoom, although it's not fair to call it teaching. I was, I was talking at a computer with lots of black boxes on it. Um, and again, this idea that um, you know, students are, are taking classes over again because they realize they didn't really learn anything. And I think it's important, the face-to-face the -face communication, uh, because we are desperate to work from home, we're desperate to be able to say that virtual reality is good enough, that we can replace the universe with the metaverse. Um, we want to pretend that something like a Zoom conversation is a conversation. And again, this goes back to the question of our panel, is calling it a conversation making it a conversation, or is it just applying a name in the wrong place? When I was a kid, I got a Commodore 64. It was hard work to convince my grandparents to get me one from Western Germany. And uh, half a year before I got it, I got a manual for it, and I learned how to program from it. And when I got it, I spent many nights typing code into it. And I was looking at the screen right? I had a realization. Anything that I can imagine in complete detail, I can put behind that screen and make it talk to me. What is it that I want to put behind the screen? And the answer was kind of obvious. An entire world with minds in it and somebody to actually talk to. Somebody who can say something meaningful to me. Somebody who is able to understand me. Somebody to interface with me. How could you not want that? And I think the reason why some people don't want it is because they are afraid. 
it's actually, I don't think it's about technology. This is about power. It's about people losing power. We are in an extremely important moment in history. We have this discourse between people who are about to build a machine that dramatically exceeds human intelligence. And I don't think just the individual intelligence of a single human being, but the combined intelligence of our intellectual traditions. A uh, few years ago, somebody in London built a computer, a program, that was able to beat humans at Go, and not just in some very trivial way, but Go is a tradition that existed for more than 2,000 years, where pretty smart pe uh, people sent their kids to Go schools, and over the years, they accumulated knowledge by retracing their Go games and generalizing over them. And you have this program, which in less than a day, by playing against itself, figures out, oh, humans have discovered a local optimum only in playing Go. There were some strategies that Go players are using that were wrong where people made over the thousands of years mistakes in understanding and analyzing this game. And for instance, the game of modern physics, it's just 140 years old. Imagine that you find a program that tries to solve that puzzle. And I think it's only a few years out that these things are going to happen. How could you not want that? Well, if you think that science is employment program for mediocre minds, of course you wouldn't want that. But if you think that we are here to understand how the universe works, the interface with it deeply, then it's something that is a little bit scary because it's hard to control it and to interface with it and relate to it, which is a real danger and we need to think about how to deal with this. But by itself, I think it's objectively, extremely, incredibly, beautifully valuable and exciting that this thing can happen. And at in this moment where we have this discourse between a dis uh, tradition of computationalists, which are the modern Leibnizians, it's basically an important philosophical tradition that won this girdle over the classical mathematicians the computationalists have now succeeded, almost succeeded at this grand project, the most important project of philosophy, the naturalization of the mind by building a model of the mind that scales, right? And in this moment, the humanities and these computerists, these machinists are talking to each other. And what is the level at which humanity has this discourse with the machine? It's the New York Times printing an article by Emily Bender, who doesn't know shit, talking to uh, the blog of Sam Altman. This is dis disappointing to me. Is this everything that we have as a species? Is this the level of intellectual discourse that we have left? There is much more interesting stuff going on in the cafeteria of OpenAI every morning, right? uh, or in uh, salons of San Francisco. I think we could be doing so much more, and I'm really disappointed at the level of language, at the level of conceptual discourse and depths that we have now, at the threshold of something that is bigger than anything that humanity has ever built. Right? We have many miracles of the world that we've built recently that uh, put everything like the pyramids and so on. It's a, a pale shadow. Right? Some of the miracles that we have built, things like the global financial system that makes everything on the world transferable and uh, mutable and can uh, transfer resources to the farthest reaches of the world, or uh, the internet itself, an amazing thing to build, right? Or the COVID virus, an amazing thing that we've created, even though it haunts us now. And now, AI, it's really an amazing moment in history. <laughs> so it sounds like we're at a kind of a very special, <laughs> a special kind of epoch in human history with respect to understanding how uh, language and reality are connected to each other. I wondered whether, um, Nolan, whether you think that we'll ever come to have a complete account of how language and reality are related and how they affect change, or do you think it's always gonna be out of our reach because it's changing and evolving? Or do you think this kind of special moment offers a kind of new insight to these questions? Um, yeah, I, I think, again, this idea, if you um, try to provide an answer using something like AI, you'll get an answer. And if we've created a world where we're willing to accept um, that a computer is intelligent and that it can give an answer, then we'll believe it. And this is what I'm worried about. So I, I, that, that you can give an answer uh, doesn't mean you've understood the problem. It just means that enough people, again, going back to the power argument, are, are willing to accept it and move on. And again, this is the problem uh, that I've tried to address in my work, this idea, you know, why nihilism comes up for me um, when we talk about, with Trump, fake news, when we talk about uh, AI and truth, um, I don't know how many people actually care if ChatGPT knows what it's talking about because it's just fun and it's cool. 
So I give a lot of talks uh, at tech festivals, at tech companies, and I, I usually say something to the effect of tech companies don't care if what they're doing is good or bad. They only care if it's cool or uncool. And then at the end of my talk, they give me a standing ovation and say, can you come back next year? Um, and I say, but I just told you that your work is nihilistic. And they said, yes, we feel so seen. Thank you. <laughs> um, so they're, they're, again, they're not worried about this. It doesn't matter. Uh, this is, again, something that the philosopher Jacques Ellul tried to worry, uh, worry us about in the 1950s, this idea that we've created a world that should be a technocracy, um, except that the, the technicians don't actually want the political power they have. So we just... They've killed democracy, but put nothing in its place. So we just have this political vacuum. Uh, and you see this every time someone like Sam Altman or Mark Zuckerberg, uh, presumably Elon Musk at some point, gets called before Congress, and Congress has no idea how to talk to them, and they just look like idiots. They, um, Mark Zuckerberg is making money while testifying to Congress because his stock price is going up. Um, so again, this idea that um, you know, we cannot actually judge um, something like AI, OpenAI won't even tell us the, the training model in order to judge it. Um, and so we just have to trust the, the people who do have some understanding. And then, of course, if you talk to enough engineers and ask them, you know, why did Deep Blue on Jeopardy, when the answer was obviously, what is Toronto? It said, what is 13? And the audience laughs, but this is a computer that's about to be interpreting your MRI and your cancer might actually be 13. You know? So again, this idea, uh, we tried using AI to, to attack COVID, and we discovered it was completely misinterpreting MRIs just based on body shape. So it did pick up a pattern. It was just a pattern that had nothing to do with COVID, and because nobody understood the AI, they couldn't actually explain what was going on until it was too late. Um, so yeah, I think, again, the, the, uh, what Joshua said about power is, is completely accurate, and, and I'm worried uh, about how much the people in power are willing to give power to the day. I think before we get into entanglement, it's time to, to thank our panelists. <laughs>for listening to this week's episode of philosophy for our times if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers